morning, everyone. Looks like the rain deterred a few this morning, perhaps. Mm. Uh, how many of you were here last week when Bishop David was here? Most of you. Wasn't that good? So good when the bishop comes and visits. We're so blessed by that. Um, I was really uh, tempted to preach on Ruth. That is a book that's near and dear to my heart. Um, but I'm not going to, so don't flip to Ruth. We're going to be in Luke 17, 11 through 19. There's some similar themes, though. So um, it's a wonderful, beautiful story, but I felt like the Holy Spirit kind of wanted me to go more in this direction. So uh, get your Bibles open to Luke 17, 11 through 19, and we will begin to go through it and just kind of unpack it and see what the Lord has for us. Uh, this miracle narrative, which Fred just read, is unique to Luke, but it does have a bit of an Old Testament echo. Um, it parallels and is kind of reminiscent of the healing of Naaman. Do you guys remember this in 2 Kings 5? Naaman, the foreign king, he had leprosy and Elijah the prophet. I won't go into that. You can look that up back in 2 Kings 5. It's a little reminiscent of that. Uh, let's pick it up at verse 11. Uh, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, which we've been harping on a lot the last few weeks as, we, as we've been in these uh, gospel narratives. His journey to Jerusalem is more than just an ordinary uh, pilgrim's journey. He's repeatedly spoken that the way of the cross leads to Jerusalem, okay? That's the trajectory, that's the reason. And if you're a geography nerd, I am not, but when I get into the scriptures, it makes me think differently. If you've been tracking Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, these past several weeks in, in Luke's gospel, the actual physical route that Jesus is taking, it is not a direct, straight path. Now, how about that? His journey to Jerusalem takes him sort of in and out of regions near the city, now, it might appear sort of happenstance. I think that's interesting. Do you think Jesus is lost? What would be your bet? No, I don't think Jesus is lost. Jesus knows where he's going. There is some sort of spiritual logic to his travels, though they might not make a whole lot of sense to us, right? Now, I have to wonder if Luke straightaway is making a subtle point here about our own spiritual journeys. What I mean by that is this. Oftentimes, how and where the Lord leads is beyond our understanding, is it not? We don't always know the how and the why for how God leads us and where he leads us. For example, uh, my route to the priesthood was not a direct line. You know, you're, what, how it's supposed to go is you go to college, right? You're a Bible major, then you get out, then you go straight to seminary, and then after that, you get your first call. My journey didn't look that way. I wished it would have looked that, the other way, but it just, it just didn't. Uh, my call into ministry came when I was about 16, and I was ordained when I was 40. So you do the math. That's 24 years. Our spiritual journeys take us on unexpected routes and byways. Right? That's just how it looks. Jesus is not lost here and just wandering around to Jerusalem, kind of getting lost here and there. No, that's not it. God's deeper purpose is at work here, as we shall see in the people that Jesus encounters. Okay? So moving into verse, that's, that's the setup, okay? That's, that's verse 11. Moving into 12 and 13, uh, it says he's traveling between Samaria and Galilee. Now that's a bit vague and imprecise, but note it. And he enters into a village. Again, a bit vague, a bit unprecise. Now, if you're an ancient listener, I'm going to try to put you in, in someone who would have heard this in the first century context. You're already wondering, so is this like a Galilean? Is this a Jewish village or is it a Samaritan village? You're already kind of wondering this. This would have been a live question for them, sort of simmering beneath the surface. 
Since most of Luke's readers were likely Jews, they likely assumed this is Galilean Jewish village, okay? And that's human nature. We all do that as readers, right? We imagine the characters in ways that are familiar to us, you know, sort of self-referential. So just, I'm just asking you to note that, and uh, it's going to become relevant later, so just kind of remember that, put a pen in that, and think on that, okay? Upon entering the unnamed village, Jesus encounters ten lepers. Hmm. Now, they could have had the actual disease, leprosy, which you may know about, but the word leper often was just a catchphrase for any number of all these skin diseases that one might have. So you might not actually have leprosy, but you were called a leper because you had some sort of skin disease. And there was a stigma of having leprosy. I'm going to put that in quotes for you. People were often regarded you as living under some sort of divine curse. Okay, that's no fun. And the result was this. You were deemed unclean by the law. Okay, per Leviticus 13, Numbers 5. Lepers were social outcasts. Complete outsiders, if you want to think of them that way. The kind of disenfranchised people that Luke uh, loves to highlight, which is so cool. So it makes sense that they call out to Jesus from a distance, all right? That they didn't approach him, but instead they kept their distance, called out to him, because that was just the social norm of the day. Let me try to give you a modern-day equivalent. Um, for those of you that were uh, alive <laughs> and aware in the 80s, do you remember when HIV and AIDS came to be known, when that first broke? Uh, there was a lot of fear around that, tremendous stigma, a lot of misunderstanding, as we now know now. Uh, people were held at arm's length, wanted nothing to do with someone because of HIV AIDS. Stigma. Lepers were the first century equivalent of that if you want to think of that. That helps you kind of tie that together. Now, uh, these lepers, they've obviously heard something about Jesus in his ministry, thus their desperate plea for help. They call him master. Did you catch that? They call him master. Not teacher, not rabbi, and not Lord, and not just Jesus. Master. Okay, This is the only time in Luke that someone who is not a disciple calls Jesus master. Worth noting. So what's the significance of that title? Here's all I want to say about that. This demonstrates a posture of humility and submission, okay, in approaching Jesus this way. To call somebody master means you come under their authority in a certain sense. And they cry out for Jesus to show them mercy. Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Now, when you ask someone for mercy, you're acknowledging, in a sense, that this person is in a position to help you, right? I.e., that this other person has some power, some sovereignty that you don't have. Okay, again, master reinforces this, that title. So there's a recognition that this person is not your equal, but your superior in some sense. So they have some level of faith or trust in Jesus' ability to help them. Okay, so they speak to him as one who possesses authority over their lives. They place themselves under him. Jesus, master, have mercy upon us. Now, their entreaty to Jesus begs a few questions. The text doesn't really address it necessarily. Uh, how do they know who Jesus is? Um, how do they know he's a miracle worker? We don't know. Um, I think we just can assume that good news travels fast, evidently, right? Stories of Jesus must obviously made their way to this small village. And their request here in 12 and 13 uh, is urgent. There's nothing casual about it. It's incredibly urgent, and it's desperate, they call out from a distance in hopes of merely being heard. They hope that Jesus will meet their pleas in some way. So, 
The question is, what will Jesus do? Will he show them mercy? Will he show them compassion? And if so, what does that look like? Well, that carries us right into verse 14, which is a fantastic verse. Jesus acts. He responds to their plea for mercy. Okay, doesn't leave it unaddressed. He responds. And here's what he says. Go show yourselves to the priests. Some of you go, what does that mean? What's that about? Why does he entreat them to do this? Well, we're getting into if I can say it, Levitical law. There we go. Work mouth. We're getting into Levitical law again. This is Leviticus 13 and 14. If a leper was cleansed of his or her disease, there was a certain procedure that you were to follow. The priests were the ones to certify your health. They gave you the gold star. They would sort of validate the healing, call it legitimate, and they would allow you back into society as a whole. So this is a big deal, right? The priests were societal gatekeepers in this sense. So thus Jesus is saying, okay, go do this, fulfill the law, uh, and go about your way, right? Now things get a little complicated here, maybe not to our eyes, but let me try to explain why this might be a little complicated. If these lepers were Jewish, okay, and they took Jesus at his word, they would have headed for the holy city of guess where? Jerusalem. They would have gone to Jerusalem, seen the priests there, uh, gotten certified as clean, right, from unclean to clean, and then they would offer thanks and sacrifices at the temple. That would have been the procedure a place they had never been able to enter up till now. It's a big deal. However, if they were not Jewish, let's say they're, I don't know, Samaritans, what would they do? Well, they would have done something very similar, except they would have gone to the temple on Mount Gerizim. How's that for a tongue twister? This was the Samaritan sanctioned place of worship, kind of their equivalent of Jerusalem, okay? Samaritans were seen as schismatics, okay, because they rejected Jerusalem as the chosen city where God exclusively dwelled, okay? They embraced Mount Gerizim instead. You don't have to remember all that stuff. This is not a history lesson, fear not. Uh, but you need to make note of that, the divide between Jew and Samaritan, okay? You need to see that because it becomes relevant later. There's something more obviously odd about this healing, though. Jesus tells them to go see the priest before what's happened? Before they're healed. <laughs> go show yourselves to the priest. Jesus is putting their faith to the test, isn't he? By asking them to act as though they had been cured. And the text says, and as they went, they were healed and cleansed. That is awesome. Folks, that will preach. And as they went, they were healed. That will preach. Okay, I'm gonna, well, maybe I will ask for a show of hands. That's fair. How many times has God asked you to move in faith on something and only after you got in motion did the provision sort of show up. Anybody done that? Absolutely. I mean, that's, in some ways, that's the story of the Christian life, isn't it? So we have stories like this. Good. Um, small story. I'm not going to steal her thunder. Just going to allude to it. But in our own children's ministry, this week, uh, as we've moved towards a new curriculum, a new season of ministry, God has provided in some very wonderful ways, some surprising ways. So ask Ellen about that. She has some stories to tell you. Um, my point is, these are good, necessary stories for us to tell and to retell to each other. Are they not? Um, they help us remember what it means to move in faith, and they help us to remember the faithfulness of God's provision that comes as we move in faith. Okay? That'll preach. As they went, they were cleansed. 
But I think this miracle is unusual in other ways, too. Um, Jesus, how does Jesus usually heal? Up close and personal, with touch, right? That's how it normally works. Usually there's some touching or some laying on of hands or, or something like that. Here, different. Jesus heals from a distance, as it were. Yet the result is the same. Ten lepers depart from his presence, and they healed on their way to present themselves to the priest. Now, just to explain this, okay, to be cured, not only that your physical health was restored, but again, you're restored to society. That is a big deal. I cannot stress this strong enough. We cannot imagine how this miracle changed their lives. This is huge. These lepers were outcasts, outsiders, unwelcome, and any other group other than their own. Okay? Think of how powerful and disorienting it must have been to now be welcomed into society as a whole after having been ostracized for so many years. Massive paradigm shift for them. What must it have been like to begin literally this new life that was laid before them by Jesus? You would think they'd all reconnect with Jesus after something this miraculous, wouldn't you? But only one comes back. Only one offers gratitude and praise. One of ten return to thank Jesus for this unimaginable gift. Imagine that. That's a 10% rate of return. Is that a good ratio? No. If I bat 100 in baseball, am I going to stay on the team? No, I'm not. We could say that's pretty crummy. We'll talk about that later. Observe with me. This grateful one, only one, did not wait to be certified by the priest to rejoin the community. He didn't do that. As soon as he realizes he's healed, he chooses to return to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't fault him for this. In this simple act of gratitude and praise, we're already seeing the gospel in miniature. Okay? When the Lord offers us his mercy, whatever form that may be, but in this case it's a healing and a literal new lease on life, the best response we could have is to return thanks, speak out our gratitude to the Lord, and to do so publicly. That's to be our confession. Okay? I want you to observe how overcome this man was. Okay? He was so vocal and so unashamed in his gratitude. Three actions he does. One, he praised God in a loud voice. Okay? Two, he fell on his face at the feet of Jesus. This was a strong cultural sign of reverence and submission. Okay? It's kind of like master. It's living that out. And three, he thanked Jesus. Those three things. In short, he went straight to the source. He went to God in the flesh, Jesus, and brought his gratitude and praise with him. Now catch this. There's a great nuance because they're comparing Jesus, in a sense, with the temple here. No need to return to the temple, God's holy dwelling place, when God was already fully present in the God-man, Jesus, the Messiah. Lots of good theology in there but I'm not going to fully go there because that could get us off on a big rabbit trail. Good irony, too, I would say. In returning to Jesus, in worshiping him and not returning to the temple, this grateful one acknowledges Jesus' true identity. Can't stress this enough. Can't. His actions speak volumes about who he believed Jesus to be, and his actions are his confession, as well as his words. So <clears throat> he approaches Jesus. He draws near to him where he once had to keep his distance. Again, contrast, quite a scene. Beautiful picture of faith finding all of us and a good picture of what that response should look like, I would say. 
Now, the final sentence in verse 16 is a bombshell. It isn't for us, maybe because you heard the story, it's very normal to you, but for a reader of that time, this would have been like, what? And he was a Samaritan. What in the world? Again, ancient readers of Luke's gospel would have flipped their lids when they hit this, when they stumbled across this. What? Wait a minute. It totally is a, it's a role reversal. It takes our expectations, and so we need to hear it in that light. Most hearing this story probably assume that this man was Jewish, okay? But the grand reversal is that he's not only a leper, an outsider, but a much despised schismatic, a Samaritan, okay? Two strikes. To say this defies expectations is a, it's just a big understatement. And you guys know this. Jews and Samaritans did not mix in that day and age. And yet here's this leper, one strike, who's also a Samaritan, two strikes, who Jesus chose to save. Luke loves to focus on Jesus' ministry to the outsider. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. He seems to revel in the irony of God's big heart for not only his people, Jews, but also for the Gentiles, the outsider. Um, okay, this is what the man has done in 15 and 16 as he's come back to Jesus. Uh, how does Jesus respond to his response? Well, we have to look in verses 17 to 19 for that. How does Jesus respond? Well, Jesus loves to ask questions, doesn't he? He's a master at that. His response begins with a series of three rhetorical questions. This is verses 17 and 18. Now, more often than not, Jesus doesn't ask questions because he's looking for more data, gathering more info, isn't quite sure what's going on. That's usually not why Jesus... He doesn't ask questions uh, for that reason. He asks them in order to reveal something to his audience, right? To lay bare something in their hearts. That's what those questions are after. This instance, no exception. So let's get at them. Three questions. One, uh, were not ten cleansed or healed? That anticipates a yes, I would say. Two, uh, where are the other nine? Now this reminds me a bit of the Lord seeking out Adam in the garden. Where are you? He's not asking a question he doesn't know the answer to. <laughs> where are the other nine? This is a rhetorical buke. Uh, if there ever were one. He's granted the ten lepers' request for mercy, perhaps even exceeded what they thought they were going to get, what they hoped for, and yet only one, only one responds in faith and gratitude to God's initiative. Again, 10% rate of return, pretty crummy. If you're in the major leagues and you bat 100, you're not going to stay in the major leagues for long. Where are the other nine? And finally, last question. And they notice these just kind of almost whittle down to a diamond's point. They get more and more specific. And finally, this question. Did no one return to give thanks to God except this foreigner? Foreigner, this word is only found here in the entire New Testament. Okay? Unique. Luke uses it with purpose. The connotation is this is someone who's born to the wrong family, somebody who's born on the wrong side of the tracks. Okay? Someone not welcome to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And yet, this solitary Samaritan proves himself to be more like a true child of Abraham than God's own people in this story. There's a lot of irony there. It's meant to hit us. And again, this is a grand role reversal. This foreigner, this outsider, he is more spiritually attuned than God's own chosen people. Ouch! It's a corrective. This reminds us of the painful truth that while God's heart is for all people, Jew and Gentile, some won't respond to his goodness. Some will reject him. Okay, one of ten. In verse 19, Jesus commends the man. He's pretty terse. He's pretty to the point. 
Thus, the solitary Samaritan received something that the other nine did not. Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Some of your Bible translations say, uh, your faith has made you well. I prefer the save you because it's a bit more holistic. This phrase is something that Luke uses. He uses it in Luke 7, Luke 8, Luke 18, very intentional. We should take this to mean more than just a physical cure. It's more than just he's been made well in body. The physical cure and healing also denotes a spiritual rescue, salvation, right? So it's profoundly sacramental in a way, if you think about it. Here the outsider, the foreigner, is held up as an example of faith. We see the unilateral movements of grace in this passage. The other nine of ten were missing something. They didn't respond to the goodness of Jesus, but the one man did with thanks, with praise, with gratitude, with homage to Jesus. His faith is a response to God's goodness. He openly, i.e. publicly, acknowledges the work and person of Jesus, and the Samaritan man is saved because of it. That's far more difficult than managing just a physical healing, if you follow my drift. Okay, we have just, uh, we've been up close and personal in this passage, walking through every verse and every sort of tick and nuance of it. Here's what I want to do. I want us to back up. Let's take the 20,000-foot view, okay? And think of it this way. I want to focus on three areas, and I have some questions for you in these areas. Uh, First area, Uh, Jesus' miracles are often a picture of, I think, the extravagance of God, the extravagant grace of God. Healing is offered to ten, even though the Lord knows he's only going to get one out of the deal, if you will. Evidently, God still thinks we're worth it. How about that? He'll take the 90% loss because he loves us. On a basic level, then, I think this passage probes our hearts in the area of gratitude. Gratitude. So here's the first point on gratitude. Where has the Lord acted in your life, showed you some mercy, showed you some favor? Maybe he's literally provided healing for you. Where's the Lord acted in your life, and where can you return thanks to him? Okay, so that's, that's one. Two focuses on faith. This passage teaches us a lot, in some ways, about faith and the gift that it is. So I think it's something we need to pay attention to, the nature of faith. Uh, We aren't saved by physical ancestry. We're not saved by the right genealogy. We're not saved being born in the right family, right? Um, You can't just say, well, I'm a child of Abraham. I'm good. It's about the equivalent of saying, well, I was raised in a Christian home. I'm good. No, that doesn't save you, (laughs) We aren't saved either because of some supposed religious purity or some piety that we might possess, so we think. We're all unclean until Jesus rescues us, whether we're lepers or not. Okay, So there's a spiritual message there. Those things don't save you. (laughs) Only faith in Christ does. So maybe a good question is this, for the second area. Where is the Lord calling you to step out in faith? Are there places in your life right now where God is kind of beckoning you forward, but you don't see the provision yet? Right? Where do you need to step out in faith? I think this passage hints at that. Last point. This passage, I think, beckons us to make room for the outsider. Outsider. William Temple, Archbishop of Canterbury during World War II, which I think makes this quote all the more poignant, and I've used it before, and you'll probably hear it again from me, says this. The church is the only organization that does not exist for itself. But... For those who live outside of it, okay? The church is the only organization that doesn't exist for itself, but for those who live outside of it. 
the church exists for outsiders. How about that? That has always been true. God's gift of salvation for all people. So, friends, welcome to the island of misfit toys. You're in good company, okay? So, I think it begs a lot of questions. Um, at least it does for me. Core question, who are the outsiders in our society? Who are the outsiders? Who are the disenfranchised? Who are the overlooked? Who are the shunned? And that carries us, I think, into the next part of our kingdom, uh, our kingdom endeavors. How do we invite them in, right? Uh, and maybe better said, do we make room for them at the Lord's banquet table? Or we say, you know, we're full, we're good, okay? Let me say this. I think there's some human nature at work here. And this covers all of us, okay? So I'm not, I'm not harping on anybody in particular. I'm just saying this, this is a tendency. We have a tendency to forget what it's like to be an outsider, right? It's easy to be satisfied and comfortable and a majority member of the church, especially if you're a white male like me, okay? It's easy. Do you remember what it's like to be on the outside looking in? Do you remember this? Do you have experiences of that? Maybe not be at the church. It might be in school, any number of things. Some of you might not even know what that's like. Some of you raised in the church might not even know what it's like to be on the outside of that, looking in. There's an old saying that goes something like this, and I've tweaked it. You'll never know how you feel about being an outsider until you're treated like one, right? You'll never know how you feel about being an outsider unless you're treated like one. Some of us, and again, a tendency we have, we can forget the gift of grace. We can forget that God brought us in, right? He took us from outside and he brought us in. He brought us into his presence, into his people. We need to remember that wonderful gift and to wonder over it with a sense of awe and gratitude. And perhaps others of us still live like an outsider, right? Even though God and his people have already welcomed us in. So there's different ways to approach this. So, Again, this third area about outsiders. Who are the outsiders in our society? Who are they in Charlotte? Let's make it more specific. Who are the disenfranchised? Who are the overlooked? Who are, who are those that are shunned? How do we invite them in? And do we make room for them actively at the Lord's banquet table? Okay, those are the three areas. Pray on those, and I pray that the Holy Spirit uh, will apply those into your hearts and lives uh, liberally and with great extravagance. Okay? Let's pray.